Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm very excited today to bring you George Swanson. I don't know how many of you have had the good pleasure of hearing about him, but he is doing something so remarkable in the area of environmental consulting and design. He is bringing forth a new world housing industry based on no debt and mortgages. The essence of his work is to create living structures that cycle through the air so that what you're living in is not a cesspool for toxic materials and chemicals. He's going to talk to us about this and breathing walls, a biological approach to healthy building envelope design and construction written by George, his associate Orm Miller and Wayne Federer. If there's anybody you should be listening to about what the housing industry needs, what buildings need, and how to do it properly, it's George Swanson. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome George Paul Swanson to It's Rainmaking Time. Good morning. Thank you, Kim. <laughs> and thank you for that great introduction. Because, you know, basically all we've been doing for years and years is um, working in the conventional housing industry and, of course, dealing with folks with extreme chemical sensitivities that had no choice, that simply had to find alternatives to what's going on with our highly toxic building materials and um, finding solutions. So accidentally, in being involved with the building biology movement for years, we finally stumbled into these products that had been used in both India and China for centuries with the magnesium oxide ancient cements, the Great Wall of China, the Parthenon, all of it, pre-Portland cement that uh, does not um, retain moisture and cause all these incredible indoor air pollution problems and rotting out of our buildings. So it was very, very humble beginnings, and you know we just feel extreme appreciation to each of our clients who simply had no choice. We had to find alternative materials. And of course, you know, having the great pleasure of both studying and traveling with Buckminster Fuller for years, we found that indeed a lot of the technologies we're using today are not proven and have solutions that have been known for centuries that are simply ignored in a culture that um, bases everything on what patents you can get on it and how you can protect it from your competition and whatnot. Uh, leading us into some, you know, extremely detrimental building materials, including 90% of what we're building with. And, of course, uh, our clients simply couldn't be near them. And so they became, for us, our guiding light on how to approach and find what we're going to need to do for the future to uh, not only build for that segment of the population, which is growing immensely by 30% a year, chemically sensitive, but the um, very young and the very old, those most vulnerable to what's happening, you know, in the um, polluted environments that they're living in. So we feel, you know, it's really our clients who have, have done, you know, all the research. This really goes beyond the concept of sustainable environments. It really is biological buildings and environments, isn't it? Correct, yes, yeah, using the principles of, you know, how information exchanges between all living systems 
and, you know, basically asking the question, why are our buildings, you know, dying so prematurely? In traveling the world, we found buildings 1,100, 1,400 years old all over Europe, and in Asia, you know, three and 4,000 years old with no mold. And obviously, it's a mineral content, the experience of multiple hundreds and even thousands of years that uh, use the correct materials and, uh, you know, simply didn't create those problems. So a deep study of that, we found um, that all these minerals are still out there, and yet because they've been used continuously for multiple thousands of years, you can't take patents out on them, and it's been uh, completely ignored on what we can do to uh, create buildings that uh, simply don't um, hold moisture the way ours do with using all our plastic binders and uh, will last multiple thousands of years. So at first that seemed like just an incredible statement. How can we create a building that will last multiple thousands of years until I visited and I was hired by the Chinese government that's doing the largest restoration program in world history, restoring the ancient uh, temples and monasteries of China. And they refused to use, you know, Portland cement or epoxies and urethanes and all. And uh, we're doing everything with these natural mineral blends, primarily binding with magnesium oxide. And uh, we got involved with these 90-foot columns in the Summer Palace and uh, had a quarter all-wooden construction built 2,800 years ago originally with a quarter inch of magnesium oxide troweled on the outside of the wood and polished out to look like marble. And we chipped into it, and the wood was in perfect condition. The magnesium oxide had balanced the pH of the wood and balanced moisture content perfectly for the last uh, near 3,000 years. So obviously, these people had thought out this process, you know, much, much deeper than we do or have in the past. And, um, you know, much, much we can learn from that. And, of course, have been very encouraged in how we can create those products right here in America. In fact, they all existed up until the 40s here in America when Portland Cement, you know, took over the entire industry. But that's a whole different story of how the same people who wonderful European families that created our Federal Reserve Board, you know, created the Portland Cement Association. They could get their 1,200 patents, and uh, even at the turn of the century, it was a million dollars to create one pound of that stuff. Extremely unnatural bonding process that uses five times the amount of embodied energy to create than the natural magnesium cements. So uh, we have been very encouraged on the long term of how to get this, these products you know, back into the mainstream. What an honorable effort. What an honorable goal. It, it's slow. You know, obviously there's forces that, you know, obviously do not want this to happen, but the laws of physics, chemistry, and biology will win out in the long term. And what's so encouraging is to see you know, the place on Earth where a full 68% of the world's construction went on in China has been doing this all along and has virtually banned the use of our plywood, our OSB, and our gypsum-based drywall. So those rumors about the Chinese drywall, you know, of course, that was a German company who contracted the Chinese who none of that ever landed in 
not one sheet of that landed in China. So it's, it's really quite false what we're being told in the media about uh, what's going on worldwide. And in the big picture of things, it does look very, very positive that these natural materials will win out and that we really will create a, a very highly automated building industry based on all natural materials. It is all about living organisms, isn't it? And it's all about living materials. Everything, everything. It is going to be biology and physics-based, isn't it? Yeah, and merging those two fields in a way that traditionally hasn't been done. In academia, they all create, of course, their own separate languages. But the simple way we explain it is, you know, that it's been proven that if your heart was a pump, it'd be the size of a small house that it's physically impossible to pump 70,000 miles of arteries and veins with these tiny heart pumps, and that it requires an electromagnetic balance between the clay in your bones and the cellulose in your tissue to create a push-pull charge that lifts blood, literally levitates blood into your ears. Now, when we clog that system up with the type of foods and everything we do, we put extreme strain on our heart. It makes the heart do what naturally will be done with a a, a mineral balance between our blood and our um, blood, bone, and tissue. So what we've created is a situation, you know, of, of course, massive heart failure and all that. But we, uh, we use that analogy as to why our buildings are dying because that natural plus-minus charge between clay and cellulose that lifts blood to our ears, you know, every day is the same charge we want to create inside of a wall, straw, clay being the most obvious example, that will simply dehydrate and balance the wall out where it won't hold moisture. We always point out that if you replace a small section of bone in your body with a plastic bone, Blood won't flow next to it. Your sweat glands will close down in that area, and blood won't get to your ears. You know, that we need these balances to create a living system that will perpetuate itself. And, of course, we're paying extreme consequence, you know, for ignoring that in our homes. You know, literally, we have buildings that come apart in 25, 30 years instead of 300 or even 3,000 when these balances are completely... um, acknowledged. I know this is kind of a strange question, but do you think that with the shift in materials, I think you said 40 years ago, do you think that buildings have been intended to only last 20 to 30 years? I don't think anyone intended it, even in studying, you know, ancient cements when, you know, 1860, when Portland cement was invented, uh, no one had any idea that it would, you know, the environmentally such a disaster. The retention of water was not a measurable thing even back then. You know, there was no uh, ratings on materials in that type of fashion. And the long-term consequence, especially electron draining that we see, like when we set a car battery on Portland cement overnight and, you know, have it drain drive the next morning, that was not widely acknowledged when that material came out. But the number one fault of Portland cement is simply water retention, which turns material into completely conductive uh, for both 
electromagnetics, uh, you know, electricity and magnetism, and heat and cold. And, of course, the moist environment creating mold and, you know, extremely uncomfortable building. And, of course, it gets much deeper than that about what it does to the spin of the electrons in your body when you stand on it barefoot for a couple of hours. You can actually be cell dead. <laughs> it's not psychological that we feel terrible, you know, standing on Portland cement for extended periods of time. So all of that was not known science back then. And, but now it's quite quantified, and, uh, but not talked about or, you know, widely disseminated, you know, in our building culture, mainly because, you know, it does threaten such large, large industries. But there is an entire technology of teaching a surface how to breathe properly, how to recreate those balanced electromagnetic charges to pull moisture off of a medium in the form of vapor. So that means it can be fully waterproof but vapor permeable, like, like cortex. But with natural minerals, that will be functional, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years from now instead of synthetic ways that may last, you know, 15, 20 years and then quit breathing, like we see with uh, a lot of the ancient or the modern Tyvex-type materials. They were designed to exhale uh, moisture but not inhale water. But uh, 20 years later, sometimes they're not breathing properly. So... You know, it's been a huge experiment. The experiment is actually, you know, over 100 years old now. and uh, But the deep consequences of it are only in the last 20 or 30. And that's where, you know, being involved with anything in the construction industry makes you painfully aware of how these things are, you know, creating these, uh, you know, degradatory situations in our buildings. You were, in 1992, listed as who's who in America for your contributions to sustainable technology. And you also are a graduate of the IBS International Bow Biology and Ecology Program. You're known as a building biologist. Right. Here's my question to you. Sometimes when materials are not available or being suppressed, there ends up being a very big cost differential between the existing standard for, let's say, construction of materials and this living, breathing material that you're describing. Sure. And so in the economy of it all, I get the health part and I get how different the buildings are, the way you're describing it. But what is the cost differential of using these incredible materials? Well, yes, because we're able to, right now, of course, I'm working with several firms that and in fact, most of my work now is consulting on building factories to make these materials here in America, and typically in just four by eight sheets to take the place of drywall, OSB, and plywood, the, the main offenders, and uh, even bringing them in from China, where over 4,000 groups are producing these now. Um, it's extremely competitive. We come in, you know, right around $20 a sheet when purchased in full containers. Um, less, quite a bit less than the price of 4x8 hardy board or um, comparable plywood. But the big savings, and because I'm, I'm building very affordable um, little 10 by 40 foot and up to, you know, 14 by 60 foot little trailers, one layer direct with these materials, including the roofing. 
So, in other words, all multiple layers on most construction are related to moisture issues, how to create um, areas that can dry behind, you know, different planes that by themselves retain moisture and can cause mold. So we've got into, we call our green building program actually the green band-aid program, how to make the bad materials work with what are called, you know, uh, vapor uh, barriers of all different sorts, but uh, more commonly called uh, vapor retarders because we found, and to the great credit of the city of Austin, the first city to ban the vapor barrier, that it bleeds in the interior of the wall. There's a dew point in the wall, and it always bleeds on the wrong side and rots the wall out. So they were adding all these little microscopic breathing uh, channels between the layers because the materials don't know how to dehydrate themselves properly. Bad magnetic charges. And, of course, that's related to the plastic binders and the methods that we have used to uh, bind our materials. So it's really binding technologies that are at the core of, you know, our building culture coming apart. And, you know, why we don't want to invest in buildings that last 30 years instead of, you know, multiple hundreds and the incredible, you know, financial waste and all that. Do you envision in your lifetime what you're involved in becoming a standard? Yes, yes. We work really close with what's called the SIPs industry, structural insulated panels, which right now are the most automated housing going on. And currently it's using the wrong materials. It's using types of foams that retain moisture and OSB orientated strand boards that retain moisture and require extreme careful detailing to create air films around all these adjacent materials so they don't trap moisture and rot everything out. And uh, that industry is extremely interested in not being sued in the future. About four years ago, we got involved with uh, FEMA projects in making a FEMA trailer, and we actually won the contest. 285 trailers, you know, entered, and we ended up with 30 times cleaner air quality than the second best. And it, we did everything with the magnesium oxide materials, the stuccos, the joint compounds, the grout. Every, every Home Depot product was out. And, of course, we used the MGO sheeting and even treated the wood with the liquid MGO and clays, um, making the wood fireproof, moldproof, and waterproof with all natural minerals. And, of course, we did it, you know, extremely affordably. At the time, you know, FEMA said they wanted to do 240,000 of these, but they had all the made-in-America materials. So that, the good, that was a good thing. That got several investors involved with what it will take to create these products in America again. And that's the stage we're at now, is putting that financing together and building the first plants. Even bringing it in from China and from the Middle East, where it's also very popular, you know, is is quite affordable. You know, we always point out that, you know, the five largest buildings in the world are covered with magnesium oxide inside and out, ceiling and floors, every square inch. In places like Dubai, it's the only sheeting material that's been used for the last 12 years. So it's not a, a new phenomena at all. 
It's just that in the U.S., we got off to a very bad start with some materials that, you know, are causing extreme problems that we need to make, you know, a gigantic shift on. How prevalent is accessing magnesium oxide for this type of purpose? Oh, here in America, we have 16 major mines with massive reserves, and uh, uh, we feel they'll all come back online. There's several research groups around the U.S. and, of course, mining companies that are fully aware of this, you know, transition that will be made and, um, you know, quite, quite anxious to get involved with it now. It's almost like you're creating a new supply chain. Yes, yeah, and it does disrupt a few areas of construction, but, you know, for years I used to build, um, you know, rammed earth, straw clay, and straw bale-type homes, and, of course, those were extremely disruptive to the norm, to what we call the stick and sheeting, you know, industry here in America, where the hope of this particular technology is that it's non-disruptive, that it uses the same common carpentry skills that are out there today. We always tell people if you, you know, a carpenter, if a carpenter is put on hardy board, they know 99% of what they need to do with this board. It's white instead of gray. You know, we can deal with this, right? So it's a practical way to make, uh, you know, a massive transition. Now, the SIPS industry, the industry that's making the prefab walls, you know, primarily with expanded polystyrene and urethane and plywood or OSB over it, you know, is extremely anxious to, well, to not be sued in the future. <laughs> in other words, the cat is out of the bag. These materials that we're using commonly everywhere in the U.S. simply retain moisture and are rotting your building out. And the, the precautions that need to be taken to avoid that from happening can oftentimes be far more expensive than using materials that do breathe properly. So our entire book goes into that deeply. It's basically, it's building biology for North America. What we can do in North America today to build buildings that won't have these trap moisture problems. And of course, in Europe, these materials are very, very common. And it's, you know, this particular building biology institute that, I graduated from has been giving doctorate degrees in this for 55 years in Germany. And, you know, it's a, a large worldwide movement that's, you know, virtually unknown in America, but rapidly, you know, gaining traction. We did an interview last year with Rudolf and Amrita, the owners of BioShield Paint. Oh, uh-huh. They're lovely. He's been at least for 30 years bringing non-toxic paint and clays to the world. I spoke to Rudolph the other day, and he said it's amazing how slow it's still going. You would think <laughs> right. because of you the green industry now. there would be this surge, but right. it's almost like there's this environmental intent and awareness, but the infrastructure and the implementation is not caught up yet. Yes, yeah. If we're going to make it, happened on a global or a, a large scale, that it has to be basically in a non-disruptive way, that we have to have transition technologies that allow people to still make money the first time out when they're using these new materials. Uh, the big lesson we got, especially using even what I thought was very simple products like Fazwall, clay-treated wood chip block, and 
Durasol and these um, different AAC blocks. They're, it's an entire building culture that doesn't do this. And who's paying these people to learn this? Now, with the entire building field, you know, basically shut down or two-thirds, uh, the new building starts for homes uh, shut down, it's the perfect time to go back to school. But, you know, no one's being paid to go learn. So we have to have a way through it. And for us, our big breakthrough in affordability was, you know, bringing in these four-by-eight sheeting materials that solve the breathing wall issue with conventional skill sets, meaning we could make even lightweight trailers and uh, even lighter weight than conventional because we're one layer direct on every aspect of the building, including the floors where we have a three-quarter inch magnesium board that becomes the full finished floor and structure in one layer. We simply full finish them like gigantic tiles. And with the roofing, you know, where we put it on and it's nothing underneath it. It's watertight. It's everything. Well, what we will do on a roof is we'll put like a graffiti guard type material so water will race off it and not stain the pure white medium and use raised channels over the seams, you know, for water tightness. So uh, extremely straightforward technology that, well, we've proven in, you know, literally hundreds and hundreds of buildings now. So it's a it's a chance, you know, to you know break the stalemate of what we're doing with today's you know modern construction. It's so exciting to be listening to you and talking with you. You're really made for what you're doing. Oh, I have no choice. <laughs> I know what that's like. <laughs> yeah, you know, I was once asked in a lecture why I do this, and I said because it's so much more difficult not to do this. Yeah. Yeah, we just have to do this. It's it's so incredibly overdue. But, you know, now the conditions are correct. And interestingly, even the first factories that we're making in both Florida and in uh, 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 Tacoma, Washington, are, uh, well, obviously they're being financed through the Canadian companies that get all their money through the Chinese. And uh, our finance people just ask, where have you been? We can't imagine why this industry hasn't happened in North America except, you know, the entrenched industries that do have done everything to make it not happen. But, yeah, why even, you know, one thought is why even bother with North America? I think 7 8% of the world's construction was made in America last year and 68% in China. So that's the good news. What about Europe? Europe uh, is it's down quite a bit, too. I think it's, you know, only like 11 12%. The entire world's construction was in Europe last year. And, you know, a massive depression of their housing and building industry as well. Absolutely. So it's good, you know, the, at least the Asian cultures that are doing, you know, far more advanced technologies are uh, dominating the, the entire construction scene. That's going to aggravate a lot of Americans, but I know what you mean. But, <laughs> yeah, you know, no, it's either like... It's... the video of the 66-day, uh, <laughs> six-story hotel that was built in 66 days flat and renting out rooms 66 days, you know, after starting construction. Where was this? This is in, uh, uh, it was near Guangzhou, the third largest city in China. Wow. 
So all of this is possible. It sounds like a ninja construction team. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was just remarkable to see, you know, the level of sophisticated prefabrication. And, you know, even though they are using lots of toxic materials in China, basically because they've been providing for the West, you know, for so long, there's all PhD-level scientists at the top of the government, you know, doing everything to reverse that trend. And uh, luckily, of course, no sheetrock, drywall, or OSP. So, you know, big, big advantages to start. And it helps at the entire top of the government, you know, you have to have a PhD in chemistry, physics, biology, or engineering. No lawyers at the top, no MBAs, no... Thank God. Yeah. Thank no God. financial manipulators allowed. <laughs> and of course, it's just... It's breathtaking to be involved, especially with the eco-cities in China. And very, very little is being talked about in the American press about those eco-cities, but it is, you know, the 12 most advanced cities in the world are under construction in China now. And uh, it's just, you know, wonderful. They're hiring the best Norwegian, Swiss, and German architects in the world on these uh, completely sustainable future cities. Wow. Have you been videoing any of this? You know, I haven't on the cities. The best reports going on on the cities in China is from the uh, Economist Quarterly Technology uh, Reports. And uh, it's breathtaking to read about it. The scale involved with it is, uh, you know, very, very encouraging. A lot of it revolves around organic food where, you know, all the food, you know, has to be grown organically within the city limits on the physical buildings you know, and transportation systems of electric boats and canals everywhere. Very interesting. You know, the livable, livable cities. Right. And they're already being built. <laughs> We're completely unaware of it here in this country. I hope somebody is capturing this, truly. Yeah, at least you can get it. You just have to look, you know, way beyond conventional um, press here in America. How are you viewed in China? Do they love you? Well, I love being there. You know, I've built a home in uh, uh, Lausanne at the Grand Buddha, and uh, I've even started a family in China. Oh, my God. Yeah, so I go back and forth constantly, and uh, it's just so encouraging that so many of the ancient concepts of uh, Confucianism and, of course, Buddhism and Taoism, you know, are gaining a huge um, renaissance in China right now. Wow, you'd never know unless you talk to people that are going back and forth. Yeah, and it's, it's simply not in our press at all, even though the Chinese government, you know, is sponsoring millions of monks, putting monks back into all the monasteries and have the largest restoration program in world history going on, restoring the temples and the monasteries. Oh, my God. Definitely you wouldn't hear it. The Chinese government, yes. <laughs> I know. The elderly are just you know, delighted to see this you know, renaissance going on. And so, yes, you know, because China's growth is so rapid and almost you know, frighteningly rapid and uh, you know, so westernized, but at the same time, you know, the recognition of the ancient traditions and the uh, restoration of the temples and monasteries you know, is adding a balancing factor to that. So it, it just shows incredible intelligence, you know, in, in very, very high places in the government. Is it hard for you to go back and forth because you're really between very different worlds? Yes, yes. And, and right. And, you know, so concerned about the rate of change 
here in America, you know, being so incredibly slow compared to what's going on in China, you know, where they have a, a very clear five-year plan, 50-year plan, and 500-year and 100-year plan in China. They know exactly where they're going with this. And, you know, there's nothing to be afraid of. <laughs> when, you know, because they will run our banks within easily within five years. They'll own our banks outright. And they'll simply unfund hundreds of our polluting industries, which they are systematically doing right now in China. So it's incredibly encouraging, you know, that someplace on earth gets it. <laughs> Many people have said that the Chinese government has polluted the air and the land terribly in China. This is the other side, the underbelly, right? Right, right. And uh, the Western needs, right, for years and yeah. years, being this huge exporter of products they had little or no control of, all to American and European specifications. And now they're spitting that out in mass as they become their own, of course, largest consumer base in the world. And yes, they got through the entire 2008 period, you know, virtually unscathed by simply, you know, their exports to America went down, you know, over 30% and 40% in some, in a couple of the years. And it didn't even phase them. <laughs> they are their own market now. And, uh, you know, and educated Chinese do not admire, you know, and in fact, there's an incredible resentment for the types of technologies that were um, propagated in China and that they do not plan on perpetuating. Systematically, right now, they're kicking out all the American and European pharmaceutical companies. It's just wonderful. They're giving them five or six years to get out. Not one article appears in the Western press. <laughs> Even the Europeans won't publish this. Nobody would know. This is like a news brief from yeah, yeah. the and inside of China. Out of our press is, is mind-boggling. You know, when you're in China, you, you just can't fathom, you know, what a media bubble we're living in. How can you keep something this large out of the press? <laughs> We've been effective. You know, the public is not, you know, aware of these things at all. You say on your website, the largest industry on Earth is building construction, even in North America. It's double the size of the auto industry, which is the second largest industry in the USA. Until two or three years ago, that was true. And now what? <laughs> now, you know, our housing, and especially in housing, you know, our entire construction industry has, you know, diminished. Crashed, right. Yeah. And, of course, our auto industry has gone way, way up. So I probably need to change that statement. The auto industry is just slightly larger right now than the total of our construction industry because we still have a uh, healthy commercial building industry and a healthy um, renovation industries, you know, and reuse of buildings. You know what's interesting, George, is that there are a lot of people who think and believe and feel that the environmental approach to buildings is simply a political one. And honestly, after reading your website and listening to you, I'm so excited because it has gravity. It has serious gravity. Right, right, right at the mineral level of, you know, rethinking, you know, how we do every single part of our construction industry. And, and right, the laws of nature are going to win and <laughs> pure science is going to eclipse you know, all the political manipulation that's gone on with green 
greenwashing, we might call it. Yes, yes. It's very embarrassing. You know, it has nothing to do with, you know, housing the world properly and, you know, getting getting anything that actually works over time. You know, what will make sense, you know, multiple hundreds of years from now? Luckily, the science is in, uh, you know, politically how we've kept that, you know, even at the university level, how we've kept this out of the, you know, the um, educational curriculum is, is, is really quite an incredible phenomenon. You know, how educated minds can be kept away from all these fundamentals like this. <laughs> it's pretty profound because I think it ends up being more like hypnosis and brainwashing with the permission of people. Right. Yeah. The, you know, the paycheck still arrived, <laughs> so it must be okay. But no, when the paycheck stops coming, you know, now we have hope because people are not being rewarded for extremely detrimental behavior. And yes, the Chinese are happy not to be paid, you know, to do these polluting materials in the future. The consequence has been so severe for China, you know, in terms of air and water quality. And we always point out that, you know, it's only like six or eight months ago that the last of the Red Guard guys died, you know, the, the 1949 revolutionaries, you know, that were all about, you know, China owning the market and then cleaning up later. And that meant they took on whatever they could, you know, to raise their economic level up. And, you know, now it's later in China. You know, now it's all PhD physicists, chemists, biologists, and engineers running the entire show. And uh, they're completely intent on, on cleaning up. They're spending 100 times more on air and water cleanup per capita than America right now. It's really mind-boggling, the scale, and that they can afford it, you know, is is a, a big, big difference <laughs> between what's going on there and what's going on here. Some people are very afraid that the United States mortgages have been sold and turned over to China because the United States is in debt to China. Uh-huh. Is that what's... Well, in- especially on the land issues, yes. right, with the, the new... Chinese mega cities that probably will be built here, industrial cities, basically, you know, making all the Walmart stuff here in the future. Yes, and there's, you know, dozens of municipalities around the country, you know, vying to get the Chinese in. And they're promising to hire, you know. Now, are you talking about in America? Oh, yes. Okay. Yeah, they will own entire cities in America in the future. There's no question about it. We have no other way to pay off our debt except land. <laughs> and uh, yes, you know, and many are going to be shocked, but many, many more will do anything to get, you know, the abandoned factories filled up again. Foreign trade zones, I noticed, have been easily made available to the Chinese business owners mm-hmm. and to Chinese companies. I noticed this looking at the list of foreign trade zones around America. I think that your observations and experience, if it's true, then we Americans can learn a great deal from the good things that the Chinese are doing and take heed. Yes, yes, especially in the areas of of food and medicine, you know, where China is number one, of course, you know, in everything related to organic food and, of course, natural medicine. See, I never heard that. See, we've oh, all... Yeah. We, we, By we, a margin <laughs> so huge. I mean, it's even in the area of biofuels, in the area of solar, you know, China has 10 times the installed solar as Germany, which is number two. And little things were just 
never told in our press. <laughs> well, you know, in the press, how the Chinese have been accused of providing horrible dog food and cat food and animals dying from their food and all that. So that's what we get. The New York Times published an article that pointed out that the probability of getting a bad product out of China is one-tenth the probability of getting a bad product out of Mexico or India. One-tenth. The scale is so huge <laughs> that anything can be pointed out, you know, as an example. Sure. But it's the safest products on earth of any country. Interesting. Yeah. Would you it's talk... pure numbers. I hear you. I hear you. When you talk about modern construction techniques also on your site, you said the average home exchanges air with the outside environment only 0.5 times every hour. And you say that this low exchange ratio results in a buildup of stale air and potential toxins in every room of the home. Then you talk about breathing walls, which allow complete air exchanges three times every hour. And you say that this extremely high exchange ratio allows the toxicity to dissipate right through the wall, ensuring fresh air with a minimum of potentially toxic buildup. And then you explain what's at the cornerstone of the breathing wall system. There's a ceiling, a wall, a floor design that combines with passive solar construction for wintertime heating and draws upon natural coolness of the earth for summertime cooling. Since these breathing walls are allowing this complete air exchanges three times every hour, and since we have a significant, and I couldn't even say the percentage more pollution from even the spraying of the air project that's been going on all over the world for the last 20 years to electromagnetic pollution, which is very disconcerting, including the restructuring of the grid, our light systems, and making everything wireless. What do you think about that? And how do you envision that that relates to these healthy breathing walls? But if it's exchanging three times an hour, is it still better for us if the pollution outside is worse? And what do you think about right. it? Right. Well, to clarify one thing, that sure. full three air exchanges per hour wouldn't be completely through the wall. That would be combining a natural air exchange, you know, like a cool tower and other natural methods of exchanging air. The wall itself would only exchange 0.2 or 0.3 air exchanges per hour. But when you combine that with natural ventilation, operable windows and, you know, tall uh, cool towers, you know, we get it up to three to five. But the biggest issue is that the air that passes through a clay cellulose filter like straw clay or clay-treated wood chip is purified in the same way a charcoal filter, you know, purifies a pool. So in other words, the studies they did on the Autobahn in Germany showed that straw bale buildings or straw clay buildings built, some of them are over 300 years old, um, have clean air breathing through them. And no one can quite explain the whole phenomena of how cellulose combined with clay, you know, purifies everything it touches. Just like packing clay on your skin will draw out the toxins and uh, purify your blood. Right. So it's an ideal medium that way. But yeah, the, the walls themselves, we typically do, you know, cannot get up to three to five. But when we combine all the natural technologies, you know, we can do that. Now, in many cases in urban environments, we will use enviro air that is, you know, processed through mechanical equipment 
to filter it, you know, help the filters and whatnot, because the outdoor air is so bad. But at least we know the air that made it through a foot thick of straw clay or foot of clay treated wood chip, you know, is extremely high quality air compared to the air leaking through a poorly built door or window. So the idea of the breathing wall is no air exchange through badly built doors and windows and most of the, you know, a percentage of the air exchange coming through the wall and the makeup air being through, you know, extremely well done filters. Very interesting. That part can get expensive, you know, but we often say we can take a huge part of the budget that typically goes into the mechanical system and put it into the wall where the wall becomes a storage and distribution system as well as, you know, keeping out rain and all that. So, you know, spend way more on the wall system and reduce the mechanical costs, you know, way, way down. If the wall system can function like a filter, you know how eventually with filters you have to throw out your filter. Yeah, they should clog up. Right. And the straw clay buildings in on the Autobahn in Germany never clogged up. They process poisons uh, like no other materials on Earth. So you're right. They filter, typically a synthetic filter will clog and it has to be replaced. But straw clay and um, doesn't. <laughs> yeah, it's an incredible phenomenon. And even the stuccos can be designed with these natural mineral blends to do that same type of thing. And, of course, the Germans have taken it much further with companies like Keim, mineral systems, you know, that create paints and stuccos that teach a surface how to breathe. That means they can go in, and, and this is a group that, you know, has finished the Vatican, the White House, and the Pentagon. The science is absolute. The websites are phenomenal. They actually talk about how they can teach a surface how to breathe, like an old bridge painted with all these, you know, toxic, pore-clogging materials that they can charge with the natural minerals and pull moisture off the surface in the form of vapor for the next multiple hundreds of years. Wow. Yeah, yeah. They even have a brochure of a building they painted 120 years ago in perfect condition. So these guys are winning, and that's the good news. <laughs> How extraordinary. That group was on the verge of bankruptcy for 35 years here in America because, you know, people bought paint based on low price. Right. You're talking about Kime? Yeah, Kime. And uh, the other group we're working with is Silicote, who makes a very similar blend that, again, charges the surface, basically teaching the surface how to pull moisture off itself and blow it off as vapor with no watermarks on the walls for the next multiple. If it blows it off as vapor, are we then going to breathe it? The same way your body blows off two quarts of water a day and you're not wet. The charge between the clay in your bones and the cellulose in your tissue creates a push-pull that pulls off two quarts of water a day and blows it off as vapor. Very interesting. Very, very interesting. Yeah, yeah. so it's the same principle that we're doing in our walls. That's why it will last and last. I noticed something very interesting. You know, we've been talking a lot about entrainment with different guests that we've had on the show there's something on your site I saw. It's either on geoswan.com or it's breathing walls. But the question is, what is air-entrained concrete walls? Oh, that's aerated is all. It's where they just blow air bubbles into the concrete. And that 
helps it out a lot, makes it dehydrate much faster, gives it higher insulative value, and um, creates a, you know, a paramagnetic charge next to the diamagnetic clay, uh, creating, again, this, you know, more natural dehydration. Now, the Portland cement itself, you know, is very, very difficult in its dense mass to dry out. So aerating it has been very, very helpful. Products like um, Hable Block, you know, that uh, go from instead of 110 pounds a cubic foot, it goes down to 38 pounds a cubic foot, the rest of that volume being all air bubbles. Now, Hable Block used to be available only in Europe and Asia for 65 years, and you say that it's now available in the U.S. Oh, it has been, yeah, for the last uh, 20-some-odd years. 20-some-odd years. Yeah. Yeah, and several companies have come from Europe and started up here. All of them have gone into bankruptcy two and three times. <laughs> Don't you think it's because everybody's ahead of their time? They're standing at the advanced point, waiting for society and consciousness to catch up. Well, that and, you know, they're, they're European-based where even 100-year mortgages, you know, are common throughout Europe, where homes last, you know, three to 700 years. So it's a different building culture, and when those German, Swiss, and Norwegian guys came over, you know, they were shocked sure. <laughs> that Americans replace their homes, you know, every 35, 40 years, or, you know, have an economic life of like 17 years where, you know, maintenance costs, you know, go up so high after that. It's a cultural thing, you know, where in Europe you pass the home along, your children don't, you know start life off with a mortgage in the same kind of way. So, yeah, that part, you know, I used to think would change in America because, you know, for about 18 years I only built, you know, with straw clay, rammed earth, fazwall, you know, clay-treated wood chip block or hable block. And uh, those are disruptive and do add substantial costs to the overall construction of a building. And... Um, you know, the culture didn't change. <laughs> the good thing is, you know, I used to always joke back in the early 2000s that, you know, we needed to take uh, a moratorium on our building and send everybody back to school. And, of course, it happened, <laughs> but we didn't go back to school. So we do have basically a moratorium on building and an excellent opportunity to, to now uh, really embrace some of these other technologies. Who's buying your new book, Breathing Walls? Well, Who's let's see, this for? a lot of building biologist types were selling more in Australia than any single other country other than America. And uh, so we're not advertising in any way. <clears throat> we're just servicing a market, you know, that is already aware in that, in that area. And what are the steps they can do now to uh, mitigate, you know, these, uh, these issues going on with their buildings? So is this for a contractor or is this for architects? Could the general person buy this book and learn something totally different? Or yes, do you have to yes, be very far goes, along? It goes real deep into the physics of how moisture moves through different mediums. Yes. And if that becomes your criteria for selection, then automatically, you know, you don't touch, you know, the materials that... Uh, don't qualify. <laughs> they don't work, basically. I mean, it's a huge admission that, you know, we have an entire building culture that doesn't work. <laughs> 
just simply comes apart at the seams, burns and molds and rots. Bill Callahan wrote a lot about paramagnetic activity with regard to the soil and agriculture and well-being. Right, right. And when we relate those principles to why we can consider like a solid rammed earth, two-foot-thick wall, a breathing wall, that explains it. You know, the crystals and the uh, mineral content in the soil, you know, is completely different than a two-foot-thick concrete wall. And it's alive. It is moving minute amounts of moisture through itself electromagnetically. And yes, they dehydrate much more rapidly than a concrete wall and are vital, alive. Absolutely. So he went deep into, you know, the vitality of soils like that. Yeah, I think he's made one of the great contributions to humanity, kind of like the Tesla of the soil, agriculture, and, and health. I don't think most of us have begun to get a feel for his contribution yet. Yes, yes. And we have to have, you know, uh, almost a complete revolution in everything and how we grow food to, you know, bring those minerals back and to bring the, basically the plus minus charges, paramagnetism next to diamagnetism, bone next to tissue, creating the push pulls that levitate blood all day up into our ears. Can you give the audience a frame of reference for paramagnetism and diamagnetism? Their electromagnetic charges 10 to the minus 6 smaller than regular magnetism. So in other words, these are like the rudder of the rudder. You know, one of uh, a newsletter that Buckminster Fuller used to put out was and still does is called Trim Tab. It's the four-inch by four-inch piece of metal on the rudder of a boat that is the rudder of the rudder. And he talks about this, how there's rudders of rudders going all the way down to this electromagnetic level, 10 to the minus six, smaller than the electromagnetic charges. And they run the entire show on the spin of electrons. In other words, the trim tab, the four-inch by four-inch little piece of metal at the, the rudder of the rudder. <laughs> and yes, that's the level we want to study because the spin of the electrons is everything to do with, you know, creating the basic 92 elements. It's just, you know, tiny angle and frequency changes that create every manifestation in nature. And Buckminster Fuller was teaching us that all we need to study are these angles and frequencies to explain everything that, you know, they really, you know, everything is 99.99% empty in air. It's just spins and angles slightly changing. And of course, that's the, what we're disturbing now with, you know, the electromagnetism in our homes, you know, with our Wi-Fi and, you know, everything going on, you know, in our atmosphere. It's these subtle, subtle changes that can create gigantic differences between the difference of, you know, creating an avocado or a Boeing 747. Extremely small changes between those two things, you know, on this electromagnetic level. So the trim tab is really a concept of study, you know, that a four-inch by four-inch piece of metal on a gigantic, you know, five-foot by 20-foot rudder on an ocean liner is running the entire show. It's the rudder of the rudder. And now then you study the little 
the electron spins inside the metal of the little four by four piece of metal, and you understand that it's running the little four inch by four inch piece of metal. <laughs> <laughs> so obviously, you know, we have a saying in building biology that you know when we deal with people with chemical sensitivities, that a hundred percent of the people with chemical sensitivities have electromagnetic sensitivities. That if you handle something on the chemical level, it's too late. You know, it has to be handled on the electromagnetic level. So cleaning up the environment on these levels is extremely important. And studying, you know, ancient mineral sciences gives us a clue of how we can create sustainability, you know, on this spin uh, at the electron level. Since most of us, I would say, that are paying attention to the changes structurally with the grid, with Wi-Fi, with microwave stations, you know, the grid is being redone and right. is being turned into a wireless grid. Are you aware of that? Yes, yes, on a massive scale. And to the great credit of this Building Biology Institute, it's become kind of the, uh, you know, one of the great vanguards of how and why we shouldn't be using Wi-Fi at all <laughs> and uh, going deep into the science of, you know, what's happening, you know, on the spin of the electron level with this new technology permeating the air everywhere. Studies out of Europe, you know, really confirm it. You know, in England, they've removed all Wi-Fi within a mile and a half of every grade school, you know, just from massive complaints of headaches and Kids, you know, the neurons in your brain, you know, for young people are not formed yet. And these subtle, subtle um, energy shifts, you know, are, are being shown not to be beneficial. The thing that's so concerning to me is that it's being done at such a large and high volume scale in terms of the intensity of what's being done, not just the large scale, but the intensity, the dramatic shift. Right. from a grid that's not wireless to being turned into wireless. This doesn't even include the microwave stations. We're just talking about everything else with respect to building biology yeah. and working with mineralized alive buildings and this magnesium oxide, for example, and the other materials you work with. How do we defend ourselves and that's really interesting because we've been working with a, a former NASA scientist, uh, Dr. Jim Beal, who was in charge of, you know, protecting the astronauts in the first space capsules from EMFs. And uh, he's just, he's our number one advocate, you know. <laughs> he's taken our, like, quarter-inch, four-by sheet of our MGO board, tilts it against a window that's facing a cell tower, and is measuring a full 98% blockage. So there's no other material commonly available and affordable, you know, that can block quite like that. Wow. So we build with the thicker materials on both sides of a wall and then treat all the wood with the magnesium oxide, you know, we can easily get 95, you know, to 98%, you know, blockage, except at the windows and doors. In fact, cell phones don't work inside these buildings. You know, you have to take your cell phone, you know, directly over to a window. So there's hope on this level. That's great. Yeah, yeah. We're working with a couple of groups in uh, Colorado Springs that have gotten gigantic grants from the U.S. military, you know, studying all this EMP or the shielding, you know, from the sun spots. 
and they're doing a good amount of work with the magnesium oxide as well. And of course, we're doing we're copper coating some of our panels uh, mainly for aesthetic appeal, but that even furthers the numbers and types of um, shielding that the board will provide. Very interesting. Wow. Yeah, so, yes, the minerals can do it all. (laughs) I mean, we all know that can work on the level of, you know, our foods and our medicines, but it's wonderful when, you know, the actual material surrounding you is also emanating those, you know, health-giving fields. That's so exciting. What do you think? Yeah, the earth and all that, you know, one of our favorite books is called The Lechtenbaum, published over 900 years ago in Germany. And it simply means sticky mud. You know, what the ancient um, European cultures did to create these muds that combined with straw and wood chips, you know, would bind and stay together, you know, hundreds of years later. And sure enough, they had a whole chapter on how to mix magnesium oxide with cow blood, cow urine, and cow dung, you know, to create these incredible sticky muds that, you know, were balancing the pH of the timber frames. They packed it next to without shrinkage and um, did everything correctly and balanced moisture content of the wood, you know, again, for multiple hundreds and even up to thousands of years. What do you think we should be doing with air conditioning? Uh, not using it at all. <laughs> yeah, it's absolutely, it's just, you know, it heats and cools your tissue and not your bone mass. You know, it's a short wave. Our modern AC is really should be considered medically criminal because, you know, if you're four degrees off between your bone temperature and your tissue, you know, you go into hypothermia, it's, it's absolutely harmful, you know, what we do with our modern heating and cooling. What we've done is we've created a building type because it can't dehydrate properly where we can't use natural um, radiant heat and radiant cool in the same ways we did in the past. We had um, regular good old, um, you know, lath and plaster. You could have steam heat in your building. They all knew you had to have gap between the lath and a big ball of plaster between that created the thermal mass that could dehydrate properly using steam heat. Steam heat, you know, hot water, sun, and fire are the only natural heat. They create a long wave that goes straight through your tissue into your bone mass and heats from your bones out. Your bones have three and a half hours of thermal storage, and your tissue has 10 minutes. Which one should we be heating and cooling? (laughs) In other words, we're constantly turning up our heating and cooling because we're only heating and cooling our tissue that eventually will heat your bone mass, but it's extremely slow, inefficient process and extremely hard on your body to constantly have a different temperature between your bone and your tissue. And uh, you burn hundreds of calories per minute and not the good kind of calories where you lose weight, balancing the temperature between your bone and your tissue. And if you don't keep it balanced, if you're four degrees off for 20 minutes, you go into complete brain fog, every resource in your body has to get those two balanced again or blood won't levitate to your ears. The viscosity will change. Everything is dependent on that balancing and the temperature through your bone mass temperature. 
And historically, that's all we ever had was sun, fire, hot water to heat. And cool is only cold water. And we can introduce cold water cooling into our modern thermal mass building or into the traditional systems without the walls rotting out. You can't, you know, one of the common systems used in Europe is to take ice cold water in a crown mold with a one-inch gap behind the crown mold and put a cold air film created by the cold water against the thermal mass wall that isolated thermal mass to the inside of the wall and outsulated, you know, with cellulose. We don't have that anymore. Our modern buildings are only kept up with the AC. We have to force the inside of the cavity to dry with our stupid AC and heating systems. And it has nothing to do with how human physiology works. You know, we're totally shortchanged in these modern buildings. In fact, that alone justifies the breathing wall, is that we can now use natural heating and cooling in the building again, like the old lath and plaster. And, um, you know, none of that works with drywall, plywood, and hardy board and materials that, you know, are holding moisture in. So we wouldn't necessarily need swamp coolers either? We could reintroduce swamp coolers, and we have, into like our Fazwall and rammed earth buildings because the walls can deal with the moisture. They can take on massive amounts of moisture like a swamp cooler, you know, just, you know, pouring cold air over a bunch of felt and blowing air through it. And and then dehydrate itself, blowing that moisture off as vapor hours and hours later with no water buildup on the walls or in the air. So we don't really need air conditioning. No, no, not with a properly designed building. Right. In fact, we have four buildings here in Austin that have no central AC. But, you know, we have massive eaves, cold water misting on the roof, cool towers, and, you know, minimum one-foot-thick thermal mass walls, you know, with the thermal mass isolated to the inside. What's a cool tower? Just a good old-fashioned central atrium with typically three-foot-by-three or four-by-four tower that goes a few feet above the top of the roof with um, vents in it, typically with a, a Venturi fan or a solar fan on top to assist pulling you know, hot air out during the hot afternoon and with vents opened at the night to let cold air drop, you know, like a lead balloon down the tower and suck into the walls. Works incredibly well in our climate, you know, here in Austin. In Taos, it works even better. In some climates, you know, you have to modify it and have highly, highly insulated louvers, you know, up on top of the tower and not let the cold air in, of course, during the winter. But, uh, you know, just saturate your interior walls with, you know, nighttime cool air. And even with four inches of thermal mass on the inside of your walls, you know, it will take three, four hours for that to bleed out during the daytime. What do you do about floors and carpets? I have a feeling... No carpet, of course. No carpet. Yeah, and, you know, of course, ceramic floors or ideally rammed earth, you know, sealed floors, um, some of that is expensive and difficult. Uh, the most efficient thing we've done for the breathing floors, and our book goes very deep into how to replace underneath a conventional slab 
is, you know, putting down clay-treated wood chip, dry chips, and then instead of a vapor barrier, putting um, a, um, uh, you know, a breathing filter cloth, and then pouring a conventional slab, and then capping the slab with a quarter inch of um, MGO backer board, real similar to Hardy backer. But then you've created, you know, full breathing underneath the slab, and a medium on top that can exchange moisture. So you can even, you know, teach a slab how to breathe. And, of course, that's because the cost of the MGO cements, you know, are 12 times higher than Portland cement in North America. So we're still stuck in the large, massive areas of the building, you know, using Portland cement. But even Portland cement can behave properly, especially used in things like the Fazwall block that creates a breathing jacket around the cores of the concrete that are isolated towards the inside of the block of the wall that uh, dehydrate properly when they have a jacket of clay treated wood chip around them that you know blows the moisture off as vapor. Where are you at about refrigerators? Well, the modern refrigerators are really, really bad, of course, <laughs> but there are some really good ones. Is that uh, Sunfrost? You know, uh, Sunfrost. Yeah, it uses one-tenth the energy, so, but those are rare and, uh, you know, expensive at this time. So ideally, we'd go back to ice blocks, you know, but built into the walls that, you know, are a foot thick with the isolated thermal mass. And, of course, you know, uh, even uh, ice cooling for the building where you create like a large ice cube, you know, in a a separate building or built into the wall that you refreeze at night and then use the, as it uh, melts during the day, you know, run that into the troughs along the top of the ceiling and get this wonderful, you know, cool, we call it. And here in Austin, we can explain it real, real easily how you can cool by that method. We have these uh, beautiful springs in downtown Austin that have cold water on a big mass of rocks flowing all summer. And on a 110-degree day, you can stand 40 feet away from that wall for 40 minutes. You'll extract all the heat out of your bones and walk away from that wall and feel like you're in heaven for three and a half hours oh while, your, while your bones radiate cool from, the, cool from your core you know, out to your tissue. And yes, that's exactly what we want to create in the walls of these buildings. This is so exciting. I have to tell you, I'm ready to build something. <laughs> it actually works, and that's a great thing. You know, nothing <laughs> to do with theories. <laughs> it actually has worked for multiple thousands of years. Our big challenge is how to create that in a modern, you know, building environment where everything's based on, you know, building extremely rapidly and low cost. And, you know, we're making progress. Obviously, the little trailers and modular homes we're making, you know, do not have, you know, a deep amount of thermal mass on their insides. But at least they dehydrate several times faster and are effectively, uh, you know, much, much more insulated. You know, the R-value ratings they use on modern buildings, you know, are done under perfect control, low humidity conditions. And at 30% humidity, you know, the R value of a fiberglass, you know, cuts in half. And at 90% humidity, it all turns into a conductor, not an insulator. So we're, you know, pumping up our AC all day long to dehydrate the moisture in our walls. A terrible way to hold up a building. 
and extremely hard on your health, you know, to constantly have your tissue temperature changing while you're turning off and on this AC all day. I think most of us feel hopelessly stuck. You know, we're in artificial lighting. That's right. We're all stuck in these, you know, 1970s buildings (laughs) that don't work. But yeah, the, you know, just the health issues alone more than justify, you know, the higher cost of a thermal mass wall. But in between, we're still going to have to build, you know, a lot of buildings with sticks and sheetings simply, you know, an entire building culture, you know, that worked around that. Luckily, we're the only one on Earth. You know, the rest of the world does build with thermal mass and has for centuries, you know, places that ran out of wood a lot sooner than we did. So that's the good news. You know, there are no stick, very few stick buildings being built in China. (laughs) And of course, those that are being built, you know, are being at least built with, you know, fully breathing materials. You've traveled a lot. What are some of your favorite places on Earth besides China? Um, uh, parts of Germany, mm-hmm. you know, are still really, you know, steeped in tradition. And the the respect I have, you know, for the, the building science or the, you know, biobiology institutes, you know, that um, started in Germany over 55 years ago, basically, you know, putting high-level science around common sense. Now, Germany has moved away from a lot of that, you know, into extremely high-tech solutions, you know, for building homes, you know, because typically they build a common home in Berlin, you know, would cost the equivalent of about $500 a square foot to build. So, yes, they've played around with some extremely exotic ways of building, but it always comes back to these, you know, basic, uh, you know, natural building technologies. And then simply putting high-level science under all that common sense, you know, to make it more palatable, you know, to the rest of the world. So that's been a, a really, really fun place to be where at least that, that uh, impulse to do that and to put that into the educational system has been, you know, in Germany for many, many years. They seem to be at the forefront of a lot of great works. Yes, yes. There's great hope in that. You know, that they're doing it in this legalistic kind of way is kind of sad, you know. Uh, We visited a lot of these, you know, multi-million dollar, you know, biobiology buildings in uh, Germany. And, you know, they even regulate what doorknobs you can put on your house. You can be put in prison for hiring your own plumber on your house. You know, everybody's got to be union. Are you serious? Oh, yeah. The guy cleaning up your yard is making the equivalent of $38 an hour. (laughs) And yes, you're on a 10-year waiting list to have a home built. And yes, young people don't get new homes in in, uh, Germany. So they've, and and they hire, you know, top-level building biologists in the government. You know, you have to be licensed as both a doctor and an architect, you know, to practice, uh, building biology in Germany, you know, for the government. So extremely well-educated, but effectively, you know, <laughs> uh, too many laws, you know. Too yeah, many. over-regulation. Yeah, we're trying to do it from the bottom up, you know, in, in America. And, of course, it's been very slow and not happening. In Germany, it's simply illegal to build the wrong home in the wrong climate. And, you know, only good things can get built. It means or fewer buildings get built, and, of course, young people don't even have a chance. But now that's happened in America, even with our bad building culture. (laughs) So, uh, 
there's a lot to be learned, you know, on building buildings that, you know, will last multiple hundreds of years and, uh, you know, have solid principles around their construction. Have you been to Egypt? No, I haven't. You know, the whole Middle East, you know, is very, very intriguing. You know, a real hotbed, but still, you know, I think its recovery will be uh, based a lot of it on, you know, these natural sciences. That, uh, you know, there's a huge movement throughout the Middle East, you know, to reject a lot of Western values and to look at, you know, the the deep common sense of uh, multiple centuries of experience. What are some of the other countries you've been to that are very receptive to building biology? Oh, gosh. Let's, oh, Venezuela and oh, and uh, Bolivia. I spent a month in Bolivia where they're building a large magnesium oxide factory. Um, Brazil is really good now. All those countries, you know, are basically ascending, you know, in a really wonderful kind of way and, uh, and seriously critical of what's happened in America, and uh, not so much trying to emulate us. <laughs> you know, that's, that's what I'd say is the biggest trend difference in the last, you know, 10, 15 years, is there used to be this, you know, almost worship for American decadence, you know, our bad foods and our drugs and all that, and uh, very little admiration for that worldwide right now. So there's great hope, you know, that they'll spit us out. <laughs> You definitely don't sound like a patriot, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, in one way, no. I see what I'm doing as totally patriotic. Oh, good. In other so, words, yeah, uh, uh, natural capitalism would have allowed all of this to happen long ago, would have kicked out our pharmaceutical companies based on pure what works. You know, what right. natural capitalism is about the best coming to the top. And, of course, we have nothing like a capitalism in America at all. That's true. Not even close. That's true. <laughs> We're subsidizing, you know, the worst technologies on Earth. So, to me, what this is has nothing to do with, you know, American capitalism whatsoever. In fact, the joke is, is they're far more American in China right now than we are. You know, almost unbridled capitalism. But they did figure out how to put a cap on it called no land ownership. Mm-hmm. Unlike nobody, here, where anything goes. Yeah, yeah. You put a cap on it and, you know, uh, you can make all the millions you want, but, you know, they only have only 106 billionaires in all of China. And until a couple of years ago, the richest guy had under $3 billion. <laughs> now there is one guy with $11 billion and the next guy down is $5 billion. Nobody's rich enough to buy the government. And it could have a lot to do with how they can get top-level scientists into the top of the government. That's interesting. Yeah. Financial manipulators are considered low-level work in China. Bankers and all that are, have far, far lower status and are not allowed in government work. You know what, though? I totally can understand no that. No lawyers. Absolutely. No lawyers. thousand to one. Throw the lawyers out. Four lawyers <laughs> per capita in America. 4,000 to one. <laughs> and they're doing fine without it. Although the Chinese are deep and steeped in metals. Gold, silver, platinum. Yes, yes big. because they plan big on players. having a currency that can be backed in yes. the future. Right. And yes, they have since 2008... They've been privately demanding an audit of our Federal Reserve Board. And yes, they'll eventually get it, and everyone knows that's absolutely the end of our financial system. 
They are completely aware of all the manipulations that have gone on, and uh, and they have not been the beneficiary of you know the Eastern cabal, whatever you want to call it, right? Or you know, or the European you know bankers. And yes, they will eclipse it completely, and they're just about to do it now. As we get to the end of this first interview with you, talk a little bit about, is it geodesic domes? Oh, yeah, that we did for years and years. Yes, and, and what are they? Explain it to the public. Well, they have a long ways to go, you know. Right now, of course, you know, they're just, um, it's based on, you know, spherical trigonometry and using, you know, the six vectors of the tetrahedron to coordinate space instead of X, Y, and Z. And with Fuller's synergetic mathematics, he was able to define, you know, all the triangles that can create a sphere, you know, with whole numbers. And it was, you know, quite a breakthrough, you know, to get a mathematics that can handle, you know, uh, you know, all these incredible, you know, odd, what appear to be odd angles. And basically define this, a sphere, you know, with whole numbers and make it uh, something engineers can deal with. So uh, it held extreme potential, but, you know, for years we built what I call wooden spaceships, you know, all the right shapes with the geodesics and all the efficiencies, but, you know, all the wrong materials and processes. And Fuller's life goal was to create a building industry, you know, based around you know, the geodesic dome and high technology that would handle all of this, you know, in, in extremely sophisticated kind of ways. And he built beautiful prototypes that traveled all over the world. And, of course, you know, none of them really obtained mass production. That was his life's goal, you know, to free people up from mortgages and have air-deliverable buildings that, you know, would literally cost one-tenth of what a site-built building would cost. And, um, you know, his extremely um, humanitarian goal, you know, is to get this to happen in mass scale. He achieved some some success for a little while right after World War II. I think about 1,500 of his Dimaxian homes were made and traveled all over the world. And, you know, to inspire, you know, the GIs coming back from the war, you know, into automated housing and to take all those factories that had been making the war machine, you know, and turn them into housing machines. And uh, anyway, a lot of it's been written on why that never succeeded, you know, the nature of how we finance homes and all that, the unstable mortgage markets on and on, you know, that um, really do not finance, you know, building one home properly. Even in 1948, he calculated that it would be about $6 billion dollars of 1948 dollars <laughs> to tool to build one house properly and then of course create millions of homes at one tenth the cost and of course no one's invested like that now it would be you know over a hundred billion you mean to establish the blueprint for it the production level manufacturing oh, yeah, yeah. He had it all yeah. outlined of course a lot of the technologies that to do it didn't even exist but he even outlined what research and development programs would have to go on you know, to create, you know, every one of the aspects for his, you know, self-cleaning homes that grew their all food, collected water, did all of that. And, uh, you know, now a lot of the technology is actually here. But, you know, the will to finance to do that properly is, is not, you know, coordinated at this time. We do feel it can happen incrementally, though. 
you know, and, and even this little SIPs industry that just prefabs, you know, the exterior envelope and interior walls of a house is at least in the direction. And because that industry is thriving right now, it's one of the only areas of construction that are thriving in America right now, it's showing great promise. And many of those factories are owned by people with, you know, much higher uh, education levels than in the past, and they definitely see an industry that could grow with these, you know, natural materials. I think you have to have multifaceted levels of commitment from different supply chains in this to make the thing go into a standard in terms of the way it operates. And so if you don't have really full commitments, like many players have to get together and saying, that's it, we're doing it, we're bringing it in, it doesn't matter, we're creating it. And when you get a certain amount, maybe those players will be the trim tab that sets this into a new standard. Yeah, the critical mass. Yes. And that's coming very, very close now. You know, having the whole housing industry basically evaporate, you know, it it really, really got people, you know, thinking much more clearly. (laughs) You know, people do not want to see the same housing industry reintroduced. And a lot of young people have no desire for, you know, the seven-bedroom home of their parents, nor any any practical way of ever seeing that happen again. So people get it this time. <laughs> you know, this isn't just a little temporary bloop. I think this transition, though, so many people are suffering. There's a lot of suffering and fear and anxiety, and a lot of jobs have disappeared. The vacuum, though, is ripe for new industrial expressions, new biological expressions, new processes and protocols, and this consciousness to have its way in new types of financing, new structures, and a whole systems approach to living, period. Probably never been a time in our recent history, you know, when it's been, you know, better conditions for change. Yeah, all the temporary, you know, what to do during the transition, you know, when so many apparent things seem to be coming apart. And uh, government could play a much, much more active role. And they may. You know, it may turn out, you know, the most advanced homes in the world are made by FEMA. And that's largely because of, you know, the massive lawsuits and the incredible trauma, you know, of having to abandon 120,000 trailers and put people, you know, into five-star hotels and, you know, have, you know, over 3,000 kids that have permanent respiratory and immune system damage that will have to be paid for by, you know, the federal government. So, yes, at least economically it's being quantified, the high cost of, of not evolving industries or protecting, you know, polluting industries. But yes, there needs to be a way that, you know, people can get onto the new technologies without, um, you know, disrupting their lifestyles. And we just have to show that it's going to be more profitable, you know, to be involved with these technologies, even in the short term. And that's why what I feel the types of things we're doing now just seem ridiculous, you know, like a Band-Aid on a cancer victim but they're in the direction of putting the foundation down for something that can actually thrive in the future. So there's, there's, you know, more hope now than there's ever been. How well did you know Bucky Fuller? 
Not real well. You know, I just traveled, you know, it, it was, I was, I graduated in 1975 from Western Washington University and there were no jobs at the time. <laughs> and I was lucky enough to know how to live with no money and just was a hanger on. I just traveled around wherever his lectures were and got very inspired on the geodesic dome, moved back to the Seattle area after a couple of years of traveling with around his lectures and, you know, started a dome company with friends and we ended up building like 300 domes in the Seattle area and, you know, really, really got familiar with, you know, what was not working about the construction field. Even adapting conventional construction to geodesic domes, that was in the early 80s and, uh, you know, we were building them extremely tight. Those were in the days when it was all about energy efficiency with, you know, zero consideration to materials and people were getting sick in our domes and it was just becoming crystal clear that these polluting materials only work when you build in a sloppy way to allow massive air exchange through doors and windows and poorly built construction. <laughs> so the irony is, is that your probability of being poisoned in a building, you know, goes up as you spend more and more money on it and tighten up the envelope. And uh, it was just, you know, uh, many, many years of doing those that made it crystal clear that what Buckminster was talking about, you know, all new materials and processes based on the physiology or biocompatibility with humans, you know, had to take place with a deep study of human physiology and the built environment. Extraordinary. I'm yeah, so excited. Even Buckminster Fuller's first bankruptcy was his stockade building system in Chicago, which was MGO bonded uh, straw bales. <laughs> and he did that in 1927 and even put his father-in-law into bankruptcy on that one. He had uh, four bankruptcies in his lifetime, but died, you know, a multimillionaire with, uh, I believe, 48 honorary doctorate degrees, more than any man in world history. Wow. Did you read any of his books? All of them. <laughs> Yes, over and over. Any particular one or two that was uh, more influential? Ideas and integrities are really good, you know, about his, you know, philosophy. And then, of course, synergetics one and two about his mathematics. Basically replacing the tetrahedron, the six axis of a tetrahedron, uh, you know, with the uh, XYZ system. So his goal was to eliminate, you know, pi and E and Avogadro's number and E describe the behaviors of wavies, wavy and uh, circular things in nature with whole numbers. He couldn't stand the number pi. One of the times, he was kicked out of Harvard twice, you know, never, <laughs> never had a degree in his life. And uh, one time, his, one of his professors was writing the number pi up on the blackboard. It was on the seventh blackboard, you know, because, of course, it'll, it can never resolve. He pops up in class one day and says, Nature can't be irrational, only your understanding of it. That's <laughs> and, great. And they kicked him out of school for it, <laughs> invented a new mathematics, and proved that all conventional math was a subset of his own. And uh, then later, you know, he I, I got involved with meditation because he was, you know, very enamored by Maharishi Mahesh Yogi and did yeah. beautiful talks together with him. and you know, and talked about how in the ancient Vedas, they had a math very, very similar to what Buckminster Fuller was advocating, a holistic math 
that could describe all the spins and wavy things in nature with whole numbers. So his goal was is that you could teach nuclear physics to a first grader without the stupid calculus, you know, trying to stair-step nature and these, you know, averages, trying to figure out, you know, waves and all that with, uh, you know, this irrational number system that would never work. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, so extreme hope in that, you know, that when those technologies are in the industrial equation, what looks like this incredibly complex process, you know, of making a, a full living uh, functional, you know, building, you know, will become uh, much more straightforward. Okay, let's suppose you have unlimited capital, mm-hmm. and you're just told right now there's unlimited capital. You right. can do anything you want. What do you want done? Well, actually, exactly what we are doing, just creating all the factories here in America to first replace our, our board and, you know, our stick construction um, building culture. So in other words, a transition where people with the same skill sets they have now, you know, can move right into a fully non-toxic breathing buildings and create the groundwork for all the other technologies to grow, you know, the fully automated, um, you know, building structures of the future. It's a great pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you so much for being with us. And thank you for the opportunity. Ladies and gentlemen, we have been talking with, learning from, and listening to George Swanson. You can reach him by going to geoswan, geoswan.com. You can also go to breathingwalls.com. Thanks again for being with us.